1: Engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome.
2: Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. Things. What that essentially means is... Discovery advances. advances. Questions. Research.
3: Technology.
4: Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith. And coming up, what the structure of your retina reveals about your risk of developing a range of different diseases... Have we finally cracked how the first biological cells appeared four billion years ago or so, and how pond skaters survive potentially lethal run-ins with big raindrops?
5: From Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education, this is The Naked Scientists.
4: Now, first this week, a new study has found that the structure of the retina at the back of the eye can reveal a host of different diseases that a person is at risk of developing. By using machine learning to marry up changes seen in retinal images with health and genetic data taken from tens of thousands of people who participated in the UK's Biobank study, Mass Eye Hospital ophthalmologists Mariam Zekavat and Nasli Zebedast think that they have come up with a way of using the retina to see what a person's future health looks like.
6: In recent years, we have come to realise that we can find out a lot more information from images of the eye than we ever thought was possible. And it's opened up this really exciting area of research. And we were fortunate enough to have access to an incredible resource, specifically a large, large study of about half a million people from the UK, called the UK Biobank, and we had images of people's eyes. And we were wondering, is there a link between images of the eyes, and uh, Marianne will talk a little bit more about how those were obtained, and ocular killer and systemic disease.
4: Marianne, what are these pictures you've got of people's eyes? Are you looking at the outside, or are you talking about what's going on inside the eye?
1: It's inside the eyes that human retina is a multi-layered tissue which offers a really unique window into systemic health. So here we're looking specifically at that retina which is composed of nine different layers using OCT imaging, optical coherence tomography imaging and that's a non-invasive imaging that uses light waves to take a cross-section picture of your retina. And so we had this OCT imaging available across uh, 50,000 individuals in in this biobank.
4: And Nazli, why should looking at the different layers of the retina give us an insight into a person's overall health or disease risk?
6: Some of it is actually really surprising. So, for example, we didn't know before the machine learning models came out that we could tell someone's age just by looking inside their eye or their sex even um but what is you know the the retina is a very intricate tissue it's an it's an extension of your brain essentially and so it's constructed of all these different cell layers that are connected to our brain and our systemic health or essentially your overall health so you can look at people's eyes and when they say the eye is a window um into your soul they're not really kidding because you're seeing um what is going on with someone's heart, someone's blood pressure potentially, even how they're breathing or their risk of having certain neurologic problems.
4: And Mariam, when you did this study, what did you actually measure and what did you marry up with what?
1: So what we measured was the thickness of each of these nine layers of the retina and we used this measurement to then look at connections to uh, systemic health, to disease and also to genetics.
4: Nazli, one of the key things about any kind of disease, we always say prevention is better than cure. So the critical question I can ask you is, if you do this, does it give you a window into the early stages of a disease at a time when you might be able to intervene meaningfully in a person before they actually get sick from something? Oh,
6: so It's interesting that you ask that. One of the key pieces of analyses that we did in this uh, manuscript was Looking at uh, future risk of disease, so looking at someone's retinal thickness and determining if that was linked to future uh, disease diagnosis, and in fact, the layer thicknesses of the retina um, are predictive of future, uh, you know, diseases of the heart, of the brain, of the kidneys, of the lungs, including eye diseases as well. So, you know, even though this needs to be confirmed. Our study does point to the fact that we can use uh, retinal thicknesses or retinal phenotypes to be able to predict disease before it happens and intervene.
4: So would the approach be then that rather than subjecting a person to a whole raft of different tests and blood samples and genetic analyses, you could plonk them down in front of you, use this technique to look at their retinal structure And then based on what you've learned about the associations between the different shapes and structures of the retina and different disease outcomes, you could make predictions about what a person might be about to develop or indeed is developing right now. And then you can make obviously interventions as as necessary.
6: Precisely. I think that is exactly how we envision results like this being used. As Maryam previously mentioned, also the OCT or these light pictures of the eye are routinely used in clinical practice and ophthalmology. And so, you know, you can imagine if someone comes in for their eye exam, then you can use this information to tell them, you seem to have a high risk of MS, or you have a high risk of uh, high blood pressure, or you might have a high risk of developing diabetes. So you should go see your primary care doctor. The other way you can think about this is exactly as you said, is what if we just had this as a screening um, you know, tool where people would come in, get images of their retina non-invasively without having to do all these extra tests, and they could know that they have risk for certain diseases that they need to get checked for or even treated for potentially.
4: Nazli Zebedast and before her, Mariam Zekovat, and they just published that study in the journal Science Translational Medicine. The origin of life on Earth and beyond is a mystery and it's arguably one of the most important questions to answer. We know that life started simply, probably with self-replicating chemical reactions that were most likely based around something similar to the DNA molecules that we rely on to carry our genetic code today. But, pretty quickly, those reactions found a way to wrap themselves up inside oily membranes that could protect them from the surroundings and make the whole process more efficient Are more reliable. Hey presto, the cell was born. But where did those membranes made of fatty acids come from in the first place? That question has bothered biologists for decades. Now though, researchers at Newcastle University have recreated in the lab the conditions found around hydrothermal vents, also known as underwater black smokers. These conditions, John Telling has found, can spontaneously generate the very molecules the scientists have been searching for.
3: There's a few lines of evidence that point towards these hydrothermal vents, these hot springs, as a likely place for where life originated. People have tried to find out what the earliest kind of cell that everything originates from was like. And what they've deduced from looking at the genes is that the first cell, known as the last universal common ancestor, liked it hot. It probably lived off hydrogen gas and it would have used carbon dioxide as well to kind of build itself. So those lines of evidence all point towards these hot springs as a possible place for the origin of life.
4: It sounds like we actually know quite a bit in terms of what we expect that ancestor to have been like, but what was the outstanding question you were trying to crack with relation to it then?
3: Previous people have tried running different experiments to try and mimic some of the conditions that these hydrothermal vents would have had. People had either tried to recreate say the high temperatures or the high pressure or or the kind of continuous flow where you're mixing seawater with this this hotter fluid but nobody had really gone on trying to combine all all of those at once so we so what that's what we wanted to do so we built some new apparatus in our lab to try and get that get the high pressure get get the high temperature and get the continuous flow all in one experiment and try and react this hydrogen gas and this carbon dioxide over these metals to see if we could uh, generate organic molecules
4: what sorts of molecules were you looking for?
3: Ones we were particularly interested in were these molecules known as fatty acids. They have a, a fatty end and a sort of water-loving end. And the interesting thing about them is if you get enough of them in that water, then they can form these what's known as membrane structures, these vesicles or liposomes sometimes are known as. But they basically form these little round balls surrounded by a membrane which separates what's in them from what's outside. So it's it's acting in a way as a sort of first cell membrane, potentially, which could separate the external environment from the internal and let different chemistry happen.
4: I understand where you're going with that, because obviously that was the big question, wasn't it? If life gets started as a series of chemical reactions, where did cells come from? So if you've got a reaction that can produce the oily bags that surround all our cells, that is 90% of the equation.
3: Well it's certainly a a good step forward yeah I mean it's the first step to creating a self yeah something different from what's outside so the ability to do that and then concentrate other chemicals differently to outside generate different reactions would be a I think an essential step for how life started.
4: So what are the raw materials that you're feeding into your pretend hydrothermal vent and what chemicals did you see coming out at the end in these conditions that that leads you to think that is possibly how some primitive cell-like structures could have formed?
3: So what we fed in, um, the basis of it was hydrogen gas, which we added under pressure, and then we combined that with dissolved carbon dioxide. We're reacting them over a mineral, in this case an iron-rich mineral known as magnetite, to form hydrocarbons, organic molecules. And in particular, we were looking for these fatty acid molecules, which are a type of hydrocarbon.
4: And do you get many and how quickly?
3: The experiments we run so far, we only ran for 16 hours. And in that time, yeah, we generated enough to find them. So we don't know if we run it for longer. We might find that we we generate even more of them. But there are certainly enough of these organic molecules for us to to analyse.
4: Do they start to self-assemble? Because the, the point you're making is that the fatty bits love other fatty bits, so they tend to get together. So do well, you start to see that happening?
3: As yet, no, because when they form, they actually form on the mineral surface. The next stage of experiment that we want to do is to try and do this, to actually change the chemical conditions. We think that maybe if we make the environment more alkaline, we can get some of these molecules, particularly these fatty acids, to lift off. And hopefully we could then see them self-assemble.
4: So if we bring what you found to the party that, that already people had envisaged as to how life could have got started, how do you bring and unite your discovery of of how these fatty acids begin to form with what people thought might also be going on around the same time about four billion years ago that that was the start of life?
3: People have found these reactions going on at higher temperatures, for example, before. What we've done is do these experiments under more realistic conditions as to what the conditions may have been like on the early Earth. And it just gives that greater likelihood, I think, that these really important organic molecules may well have been formed within these sub-ocean hydrothermal vents. And it might also increase our understanding as well, I think, on about how life may have originated in, in other places in our solar system where the, a similar chemistry might might be going on.
4: I was going to ask you about that because, of course, we've got missions that are going to be looking at Europa, which is one of Jupiter's moons. People have also considered Enceladus, one of Saturn's moons, which appear to have warm, liquid oceans beneath the surface of ice. So it's possible the conditions there might be similar to the conditions you're mimicking in your laboratory.
3: Exactly so, yes. I mean, I think the best characterised ocean so far is actually Saturn's moon Enceladus. It's actually a spacecraft which is travelled around known as Cassini and it's actually sampled these plumes which people think are emanating from beneath the kind of icy layer of Enceladus into this ocean so you've got part of this ocean actually being blasted out into space and and been analysed and when they've analysed the sort of vapours and particles that are in this plume they found hydrogen gas, they found carbonate so signs that carbon dioxide's there as well and they've also analysed different organic molecules. It seems that all the ingredients potentially for an origin of life might be there but it's going to take a fair few more experiments to try and narrow that down further
4: absolutely fascinating findings newcastle university's john telling there and that paper's just come out in the journal nature communications earth and environment
5: the naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with spitfire Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
1: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions.
4: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, how are pond skaters able to survive potentially lethal run-ins with raindrops? But first... Back to medicine and health now because Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York, has revealed that she's been diagnosed with malignant melanoma. The 64 year old author and former high profile member of the Royal Family said she was grateful for the love and support that she'd received and she urged people to look out for signs of potentially cancerous moulds. To tell us more about the science and medicine of malignant melanoma, here's Rhys James.
5: Malignant melanoma affects more than 300,000 people around the world each year and its ability to metastasize or spread to other parts of the body can make it particularly pernicious. The disease accounts for only 4% of all skin cancers, but is responsible for 75% of deaths caused by these malignancies. Melanoma UK says your chance of surviving it largely depends on how early it's caught, and if it doesn't spread to your lymph nodes or another part of your body, then it's highly likely that simply removing it will cure you. So what should we know about how it develops in the first place? Melanoma is caused by ultraviolet light, and in particular UVB rays from the sun and also sun tanning beds. The light damages the DNA melanin-producing cells in the deepest layers of our skin. This stops the cells repairing their DNA from further damage, and locks them into an uncontrolled growth cycle. Although melanoma cases have roughly doubled since the 1990s, some of us are at greater risk than others. People with fair skin, fair hair and freckles are particularly susceptible, as are those with a history of the disease in their immediate family. Intense and intermittent sun exposure, including frequent sunburn, is associated with the greatest risk. The average age for diagnosis is 66, but it is not uncommon for people in their 30s to develop it. Thankfully, greater awareness has led to a reduction in the number of children dying from melanoma in recent years. This has been in no small part due to successful health campaigns run around the world, including in Australia and New Zealand, which have the highest global rates of melanoma. The famous Slip Slop Slap campaign in the 1980s, which featured Sid the Seagull encouraging people to slip on a shirt, slop on the sunscreen and slap on a hat, remains great advice to reduce and avoid sun exposure. So what should we be looking out for if we think something isn't quite right? Sarah Ferguson said her melanoma was discovered following the removal of what turned out to be a cancerous mole during treatment for breast cancer. The NHS advice here in the UK says that in order to catch the disease as early as possible, we should all be looking out for new moles, a change in an existing mole, large moles and even moles that are either uneven in shape or a mixture of colours, and especially those that are particularly dark, itchy or tend to bleed. If melanoma is caught early it is likely that it will not cause further problems. The first step in treatment is usually surgery to remove the affected area and check that it's been completely excised. This is curative in the majority of cases, but some people will present with disease that has already spread from the primary site or return with a relapse later, in which case patients are treated with chemo or immunotherapy. Professor Sarah Allinson has written a great piece in the conversation about the huge improvements in treatment over the past decade including the development of drugs such as dabrafenib or trametinib. These new agents prevent cancerous cells from growing and also allow the immune system to recognise them as hostile and destroy them. Some patients have now been cured with these therapies, despite presenting with extensive disease, proving that they can work in some cases. Now the race is on to work out how to make the processes effective for everyone. Nevertheless, when it comes to cancer, prevention is, of course, always better than cure. So be sure to remember the advice of Sid the Seagull and slip on a shirt, slop on sunscreen and slap on a hat. And if you notice that you have new moles, a change in an existing mole or large moles, then speak to your doctor and get yourself checked out as soon as possible. Back to you, Chris. Thank you, Rhys. Nature now. And
4: researchers in the United States have made a big splash in the science field this week by using ultra-fast photography to watch what happens when pond skaters, which are called water striders in America, are hit by falling raindrops, which massively outweigh these tiny insects. For them, it's like one of us standing under Niagara Falls, so says the study's author at Florida Polytechnic University, Darren Watson.
7: We did this by first capturing the insects from our local ponds. And we had to create a rainfall simulator. So we had a reservoir of water that we pumped through a nozzle that mimicked raindrops. Those raindrops struck the insect and we observed the interaction using our high-speed video cameras in the lab.
4: So you go in a shower, basically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How fast is fast? When you say high-speed imaging, how many pictures a second are you taking of this?
7: We can capture up to 4,000 frames per second, so it's very fast. We see the droplets moving on the order of milliseconds.
4: Talk us through them. When you look at this footage, what does it show?
7: Before we talk about what occurs with the insect when a raindrop hits a pool of water, what you're going to get is a splash, and we're all familiar with splash. We see this during rainfall, but that splash constitutes um, a couple different phases. So we see an underwater crater. We see a jet that goes back up um, above the water surface. And it was important for us to look at how the insect interacts with these different components of the splash. So when the insect is struck by a raindrop, we see that the raindrop pushes the insect into the water body. And the insect, you'll find that Along the the inner surface of that particular raindrop, as it creates a crater inside the body of the water, so we find that the insect is, you can say, attached to the to the water at that point in time. So then, when the jet is formed, it is um, transported out of the water with the jet.
4: So the water gets pushed downwards and outwards and compressed by the incoming droplet and what is it a rebound of the water coming back in underneath the insect that creates a, a jet like almost like a geyser underneath it that pushes it up in the air
7: yes the rebound occurs as the dented surface of the water tries to go back to its original state so raindrop pushes the insect beneath the water and then there's a rebound and you have the jet coming upwards.
4: Does the action stop there, or do, do you then get secondary effects? Because obviously what goes up must come down. If you've made a jet, do you then get secondary rain, effectively, off the back of having hit the insect the first time?
7: Yes, and that is where the danger lies for the insect, because that jet then disintegrates to create what you would have termed secondary rain, and it then pushes the insect inside the body of the water again. And we find that the rebound is going to be so precipitous that the insect is going to be left beneath the water line.
4: Does it have to swim up? And then how does it break through, assuming it does, the surface of the water? Because there's surface tension there between the yes. air and the water, isn't there? So how does the insect get back through there and end up on the air side? rather than on the water side?
7: This is rather innate to the insect, because the insects are generally born beneath the water line. And their youngs, what they do, they swim to the top um, to where that water line is, and they break the surface to get onto the air side. So the adults are also able to do that. And they do that through a series of what we call power strokes, applied at an acute angle and that allows the insect to be able to break that water line to get back onto the air side of things.
4: They obviously do it quite well because there's loads of them and if I look at the pond near where I live there's there's many many to count so they're obviously pretty good at this especially with the terrible weather we have but what are the applications of this because it's it's interesting and fascinating to understand how these insects have evolved to have this behaviour but understanding this now as you do Can you apply it to any other aspects of what we see in the marine or aquatic realm?
7: Yes, we can. Um, Our results here, they will allow us to better understand the transport of floating particles like microplastics on the Earth's water bodies. Now, microplastics are similar in size to our water striders, or in your case, pond skaters, And they would likely share a similar experience during rainfall. As a matter of fact, in some of our experiments, we replaced water striders with floating particles and observed these similar interactions. So that's the main real-world application of the study at the moment. And we're going to be seeking to explore transport of microplastics on our world water bodies going forward.
4: Darren Watson, and he just published that study in the journal PNAS. Question of the week time now and James Titko has been enjoying getting his teeth into this tasty scientific morsel.
8: Hello it's Celia here. My question is why does stolen go floppy in the toaster instead of crispy? We tried to toast our
4: slices of stollen, thinking it would be the Christmas equivalent of toasted hot cross buns but instead of the crispy toasted texture we were expecting our slices became floppy and had to be removed from the toaster with
2: tongs. Thank you, Celia. Now, for the uninitiated, this delicious German fruit bread contains marzipan and spices and is inextricably linked to the festive period. I asked culinary queen Nicola Lamb to help find out why Celia's leftover Christmas stolen might have gone sloppy in her toaster. She's the author of Sift, The Elements of Great Baking, which comes out this May.
8: Stollen is an enriched dough with a relatively high amount of mixins in the form of dried fruit and marzipan. So there's problem one. There's relatively less bread to toast.
2: When you toast bread, it undergoes the Maillard reaction, which is a chemical reaction between a reducing sugar and a protein present in the bread dough. The result is that lovely browning, crisping effect.
8: Stollen has almost double the amount of mixins to a dough compared to something like a hot cross bun. Some recipes are about 40% fruit and marzipan by weight. The lower proportion of bread, combined with the high proportion of fat in the marzipan and butter in the dough itself, will mean the stollen could soften rather than crisp up.
2: Another issue is moisture. The Maillard reaction cannot take place in the presence of water.
8: Just think about the colour of boiled food versus roasted food. In the enclosed space of a toaster, the moisture from all those add-ins, I think in particular the buttery, steamy marzipan, might result in the Stolen steaming rather than toasting.
2: There's just nowhere for the moisture to evaporate, further contributing to your soggy Stolen.
8: I expect the traditional powdery, sugared crust in most Stolen recipes could also be playing a role. I feel like everything matters in baking – it probably attracts quite a lot of moisture to the crust since sugar is so strongly hygroscopic, meaning it likes to absorb moisture from the air. In general, I think you'd be better off grilling your stall and flipping it halfway. That way it has space for the moisture to evaporate and to allow the toasting to happen.
2: Many thanks to Nicola Lamb and be sure to look out for Sift, the elements of great baking. Join us next time when we'll be answering this question from listener Satya. She says, why do languages evolve completely differently between countries, even when they directly border each other? Why do they have such different dialects? Thank you,
4: James. And if you've got a question that you'd like us to have a go at, why not pen it in an email, of course, to chris at com. That's all we have time for this week. But do tune in on Tuesday when we're going to be looking at the shipping industry and how it's hoping to tackle the climate crisis head on as we take a voyage on the ship of the future. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And from all of us here at The Naked Scientist, until next time,
3: goodbye.